If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 8. And the title of today's message is Christ's Example of Humility, A Reason to Celebrate Christmas. Christ's example of humility, a reason to celebrate Christmas. It seems strange that a human being would talk about humility. <laughs> is, um, if there's anything you know about humans, we're not exactly humble. If you watch football this afternoon, you will see a display of humility like, no, not really at all. Um, I wish I could spike the ball after I do my job. <laughs> but we have a lot to be thankful for. It's officially the most wonderful time of the year. Can you feel it? Won't getting up for work tomorrow be so much easier because it's the most wonderful time of the year? I woke up at 2 a.m. this morning and wasn't able to go back to sleep, but I was like, you know what? It is the most wonderful time of the year. That's not at all what I felt. I (laughs) hope you guys get that. It's a joke. Yesterday, my little family set up all of our Christmas stuff, and I did the dad chore of going up to the attic and getting all the stuff and bringing it down to the first floor. Um, And I'm one of those weird people that is determined to wait till after Thanksgiving to do any kind of Christmas celebration, right? I think all the men are like, heck yeah, because we know what the electric bill is going to (laughs) do. My little girl is is getting older and and really starting to enjoy the Christmas season more and more. And the reason she thinks it's so magical is because of the lights of the Christmas tree and on the house. And and oddly enough, that's the same reason that KCPNL finds it so magical. (laughs) When you get your bill that says you are not as efficient as your neighbors. Has anybody else gotten that email from KCPNL? You're not as efficient as your neighbors, right? The clients got it. You guys are my neighbors. Okay. The game is on. But isn't it strange, though, how far a cry how we celebrate Christmas is from the original, the, the, the first Christmas? Like, if you told Mary and Joseph, this is how we're going to celebrate Jesus' birth, they would have laughed. If we, you know, went back and told them we're going to put up lights, we're going to put up a tree, we're all going to get new pajamas, we're going to buy each other gifts, rack up credit card bills, right? We're going to eat a lot of food and stay in hotels. Wouldn't you love that? Nobody got it? There's no room for them in the end? Okay. Come on, people. But if we went back and told them how we were going to celebrate Christmas, they would have loved to enjoy it the way we enjoy it. But for them... It was a night of pain, but also joy. It's just so different, the humble way that they had Christmas versus how we celebrate Christmas. We go visit family, stay in hotels. They were just trying to not have Jesus in the street. We set up decorations and lights, blow up huge inflatable snowmen in our front yards. They surrounded by animal filth in a barn. We get new pajamas, eat our fill of awesome food while they were sleeping in hay and eating leftovers from the hotel. But here's, here's, here's what I'm getting at, though. I'm not here 
to bring negative feelings towards everybody's yuletide experience. I do think, though, that the humble um, happenings of Jesus' birth was on purpose. I do believe that God had every intention for Jesus to be born in the circumstance and the places and to the people that he was. It's not an accident that the Lord of glory was born into a humble home. So again, I'm not here to condemn anybody's you know, excitement about Christmas. Put up your Christmas tree, right? <laughs> Buy the presents. <clears throat> but I am here to encourage us to be more extravagant in our celebration of Christ than in our celebration of Christmas. So if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 2. This is not the most Christmassy scripture to be kicking off the Advent season, but I think that it speaks to the theology, if you will, or the spirit of what Christmas is in a refreshing way. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is verse 3. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and, found, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's three things this morning that I want us to look at in this scripture and to take away. Three things I think we see in this scripture. First, we are called to humble service. Humble service. Second, Jesus... Example of humility. And the third, Christmas is the celebration of Jesus' humble service. Would you pray with me before we continue? God, would you move in our hearts and incline us towards humility? God, would, would you be worshipped through this sermon. Jesus, would you be exalted this morning? And would our offering of celebrating Christmas be a fragrant worship experience, a fragrant offering to you? Lord, would you speak through me for your glory and for the joy of all these people? In Jesus' name, amen. So my first point, we are called to humble service, looking at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Philippi to encourage them as they are maturing in their Christian walk, faith, and pursuit of Christ. This church was a missions outpost. Philippi wasn't a big city like a lot of the places where churches were planted. Paul had this method really of he would go to the big, big cities, plant a church, and let the trickle-down effect of the gospel spread to the suburbs, if you will. Because a lot of the big cities were port cities or, or cities that people traveled to. But Philippi was more of a city that people traveled through. Right? Like every city in Kansas, a city traveled through. It's okay. But it's, kind of like, it's a little bit like St. Joseph, is it not? People, you know, as our city does grow, it, it attracts a lot of people who travel through St. Joseph. So he is writing to this church to, from prison. Right? Keep that in mind. That's really important when you look at, you know, this guy is in prison encouraging people that are not in prison. So he must have something very true to say. If you can be encouraging from prison, you have Jesus. <laughs> Paul's writing to them from prison was encouraging them in growth in their Christian walk. And that's what we want to do as a church. We want to grow in our walk with Christ. Grow in our pursuit of Christ. And part of growing is this idea of humility. You know, sometimes we think of growing as getting bigger and more vocal, more boisterous, and more visible. But growth in your Christian walk often means silence. Often means not so verbal. In this section, he's encouraging them, the church, to maintain unity in Christ through their service to one another. This is growth in Christ, to serve one another, right? Not just to see each other or encourage each other verbally, but to really serve one another. That's humility, is when you decide that someone is more important than yourself. And that's what he's encouraging the church to do, to pursue humility and to pursue serving one another in unity in Christ. One of the things that I've noticed in my short 10 years of ministry, people who do church service for themselves, their time is limited. And it will probably be short. I was talking to Betty Ann about this this morning. You, I think Betty Ann is the most tenured member of this church. And is she in here? No. She's back there, right? Serving, taking care of the kids. You think she'd be doing it this long if she was doing it for herself? Uh, no. Not back there. <laughs> kids don't say thank you. Let's just be real. And, and what Paul is encouraging the church to do is as they serve each other, as they serve the church, to not do it for their own interests or for personal gain or for positive feelings. 
He's encouraging them to do it strictly because that's what Christ did. And because in serving each other, we experience maturity in Christ. And like I said, you know, kids ministry, there's not a whole lot of, you know, thank you teacher for your lesson today. There is a lot of, when is it over? Can I go to the bathroom? Are we done yet? Do I get a prize? Because <laughs> that's just how kids are. Kids are selfish. Every night, my daughter says to my wife, you're not a good lady, because she doesn't want to go to bed. Like, that is, that is how kids are. Mommy's not my friend. Or she says her, you know, the kid version of cuss words, Harper's version, we, there's things she's not allowed to say, like stupid dog, no way and stop it. So every night when we're making her go to bed, she lays in her little crib and says, stupid dog, no way. No context, she just has got to get her little anger out of her and those, those are her little cuss words. But that's, you know, kids ministry, there's a reason it's the hardest ministry to staff and it's, there's, I asked Betty Ann, I said, has there ever been a month in your 10 years that there was not an announcement for a need for kids ministry workers? And she said, I don't think so. You know, and kids' ministry is hard not because the tasks are hard. It's because it doesn't really stoke your pride. Let's put it this way. You're not going to find Odell Beckham Jr. back there. For those of you who don't know who you are, he's a football player who's really proud of himself. All right? You're not going to find a lot of NFL running backs, quarterbacks, wide receivers working in a kids' ministry in their church. It's also why you don't find a lot of men, unfortunately. In my short 10 years of ministry, there's always a waiting list for people that want to get on stage and play music. But rarely is there a waiting list for people to serve in kids' ministry or the cleaning team. But these are the kinds of things that Jesus is calling us towards. This is the kind of thing that Jesus modeled. The Lord God of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, washed people's feet. And people's feet weren't contained by socks and expensive shoes back then. Feet were their transportation. You know what also traveled the same place as they did? Animals. And they didn't have street sweepers to come behind the animals and clean up what the animals had as exhaust. People's feet were gross. But what does the creator of heaven and earth do for those he serves? He washes their nasty, disgusting feet. This is the mark. This is, this is what we are called to as Christians. Humble service. You know, and like I said, the trouble with people serving in the church is that we, all, we often really want gratitude. We really want to be appreciated. And that's okay. But the problem is, is when we want the credit. Humans really like to receive the glory for things. We're really good at looking out for our own interests. 
you know, the church of Philippi. It's a pass-through town. People passing through. So I'm sure they had lots of people who came and voiced their opinion about things and then just passed on. So what a challenging thing for people who are passers through to be reading, to be hearing from the pulpit, if you will, as they read this letter from Paul who's in prison. Do not be interested in your own interests. Because when you're somewhere for a short time, you really just want what you want out of it before you move on. And that's not what we're called to. We're called to humble service. The question we need to ask ourselves when we are in the middle of serving is why do I do this? Why am I, why am I serving in the area that I am when you are serving, right? The, the, the default for us should always be serve. Should always be serve. Should never be should I. Unfortunately, a lot of times we think, should I? That's not the question. The question is, what do I do and why do I do it, right? Even if it's taking out the trash at church, find a place to serve. Not for the church, not for the leadership, not for yourself, for Christ. That's how you last. This attitude of what's in it for me is really easy to slip into. It is really easy to slip into. That's our natural inclination. What is in it for me? That is what we naturally ask. And it's hard for us to realize, but it's real easy for people around us to notice it. That's why it's humble service. That's why we need for people to be speaking into our lives, to be able to encourage us to find the right things, to encourage us in how we do things. Because you do not want to serve somewhere that is just not you. Has anyone ever met that greeter at Walmart or at church that you're just like, what did I do wrong? What did I do to you? I'm here. Is that, I'm sorry, right? We want to have people speaking into our lives about how we serve. That's what it is to, for us to humbly serve. But I have been guilty of this. It is just so easy for me to ask, what's in it for me? What is in it for me? You know, the solution is not to quit. The solution when you are in a place where you are struggling, the solution is not quit. The solution is what it's always been, repent and realign. When it gets hard to serve, when you don't really feel like you want to serve anymore, when people have wronged you, when people have spoken ill of you, when you have messed up and given them a reason to speak ill of you for, the solution is not quitting, it's repenting and realigning. Now, of course, there are times when you've got to take a step back to repent and realign, especially if it's a public place. You cannot be a public witness for the gospel and be in sin and not take a step back from the light to repent and realign. We should never ask ourselves, should I serve? We should only ask, how should I serve? But, you know, what I love about Paul and what I love about the gospel so much is that 
we are not just given lists of don't do this, right? We are not just expected to follow rules of, of don'ts. We are not just given don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and then have to use our imagination to find something to do. In the gospel, we are always given an example of what to do. And Paul does that here when he moves on to verse 5 and 6, our example of humility is Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I'm going to read that again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul's description of Jesus' way of serving is not a style or method. He says, have this mind. Serving the way Jesus serves is a mindset is a mindset and a heart set. And it can be ours in Christ. To be in Christ, to be saved by Christ, that's when we receive this mind. That's when we receive this model where we look at Christ and we say, this is how we ought to serve. And that's what we're doing here today. We're looking at Jesus' example of humility. Because when I'm talking about service, I'm not just talking about in the church, right? That would be way too easy to just get up here and be like, serve in the church and then everybody clap when we do it and go home. No, I'm talking about serving as a lifestyle, as a method of living when you walk out the doors, when you get home from today, when you get home from work, when the kid's crying in the middle of the night, when the neighbor needs help. I'm talking about service as a lifestyle. Because Jesus didn't just serve those he was supposed to serve. He served those he was not supposed to serve. And he was humble even to those he was not supposed to. To serve, right? Like the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus. He's on a break. It says that Jesus went to Tyre. This is Matthew 7, I think. Jesus went to Tyre and did not want anybody to know where he was or who he was. He's on vacation. And this woman comes to him knowing who he was and what, you know, Jesus needed a break and here comes somebody else, somebody who he's not inclined to serve because he's not necessarily in a place where he wants to. But what does he do? He humbles himself to take care of her needs. Right? The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, first of all, I talked about this in my last message. First, he talked to a woman. And in that day and age, men didn't do that. And they especially didn't do it to Samaritan women. And they especially didn't do it to Samaritan women that they knew were living in sin. But what does Jesus do? He says to his disciples, go find food. And when they come back, they find him with a woman he's not supposed to be talking to. But he humbled himself to a place where he talked to who he wasn't supposed to talk to because he loved her. 
Because love was his identity. And love is still his identity. He loved the people he was not supposed to love. You know how I know that? He loves me. I'm a Gentile. I am not of God's chosen nation. And if you are here today, and you are a Gentile, that means not Jew, Jesus was not supposed to love you. Not according to the cultural standards. But what did Jesus do? He humbled himself and loved the whole world. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we are... The church. If we are in Christ, we are the church. And having this mind is having a culture, a standard, an expectation. And it's what we automatically do. That's what culture is. We automatically do. In our culture, we automatically stand in lines. Has anyone ever done that where you're just like, I don't know what we're standing in line for, but I'm going to stand in this line. Right? You've been to the gas station or something, and there's a line formed, and we're like, this person's open, but I'm standing in line. That's a culture. We are just really good at just hopping in line with everybody else and standing there. You know, people walk up to you. Are you standing in line? I think so, but now that you asked, I'm not sure that I am. Right? A culture is a mindset, immediate expectation to do something. And Jesus' mindset, Jesus' culture was humility. This means the church's culture should be towards humility and looking at what is best, what best serves those around us. Those around you. Instead of, what do I get out of this? A church should be a place full of people who are more interested in serving each other than getting what they want out of the community the church community. It should be a place where the lost are welcomed and where people are sent out to go find more lost people. Where the conversations are about how can we see more people come to Christ and not about the newest, juiciest gossip. Let's be that kind of a church. Let's have that kind of a mindset where we ask first, how can we see more come to Christ? Let's be the kind of church that puts our desires to the side and says, how do we go get those lost ones? Let's be the kind of church that acts like Jesus and leaves the 99 to go find the one. Let's be the kind of Christians who are not, not content for a pat on the back in a comfy chair. Let's be a church that is more concerned with our sending capacity than our seating capacity. Let's be a church that has too many children's ministry workers. <laughs> Let's be a church that, just, that doesn't just have bumper stickers. We truly live for Jesus no matter where we are. 
It is so easy for me to overlook Jesus' humility. It is so easy for me to overlook Jesus' humble service and look to him turning over tables in the temple and talking to the Pharisees and shooting down the religious people because I want to be that kind of a leader. I want to be the kind of leader that, that just has something awesome to say all the time. But Jesus' method of operation the most, the, the way he served people the most was in quiet and alone and one-on-one. More often than not, Jesus was with someone he shouldn't have been ministering to because it was culturally unacceptable. But he knew they needed the gospel more than they needed the standards of the culture. It says in Matthew 20, verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He had this mindset, this way of doing things that pointed away from himself and towards his Father. That was his inclination. That is what we are called to as Christians, to do things in, an, in a way that points more towards our Heavenly Father and towards ourselves. Even though Jesus came to do the most incredible thing in all of human history, he didn't do it for himself. He did it for his Father, for his Father's glory, and for our joy. Now let's let this verse sink in Verse 6, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Isn't that what humans do? Isn't that what we did the first opportunity we had? We said, oh, we could be like God? I'll eat that apple. Adam and Eve in the garden. Eve, right? We can get into who sinned first. I think Adam should have manned up. Said, no, babe, I'm not doing that. That's just my opinion that he sinned first. But in the garden, what did they say? Oh, and the serpent came to them and said, Did he really say that? Is he hiding something that's awesome? Does he really want what's good for you? I think you know better. And how many times have we said, You know what? I do think I know better. And we may not have said that, but we believe that. Every time we act outside of God's word, we are saying to God, I know what you said, but I have a better idea. We say to God, no, I think you'll serve me. And what did Jesus do? He lived a life of complete service to his father, pointing all attention away from himself and toward God. And he encouraged all of his disciples to do everything for the glory of the Father. That's what Paul writes to the church to encourage them to do. To live a life of humble service to God so that the glory doesn't go to us, but to the King of kings, to the Lord of lords, so that the world will look to him and not to us. Because when the world looks to us, they're just going to get so disappointed. 
so disappointed. Because we don't offer eternal life. We don't offer perfection. We don't offer the answers. What does Jesus Christ, the one who lived perfectly, the one who taught perfectly, the one who gave perfect salvation to us, and we have God's word to know God's will. And we see this scripture where he had this mind to, to not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, even though he was God. Even though he deserved the honor and the glory, he refused to get in the way of his father receiving glory. What servanthood. To be God, yet humble yourself to the point where being equal with God is not even a thought to you. We sang it earlier. The king of all creation set aside his crown. A servant to the father's love, he descended from his throne above. Do you understand what it cost Jesus to come down here and to be like one of us? He set aside his full glory, his crown, so that he could serve us. This doesn't even register with us because we do not understand or cannot fathom that kind of humility where we will set aside our glory in order to serve those around us. How many times have I come home from work and expected some sort of glory from my family? Instead of coming home with the heart and mind to serve my family. But Jesus set his glory aside. And, you know, the, the people of Israel were expecting when Jesus came to come as, you know, a conqueror. Now, scripture says that Jesus will come as a conqueror with a sword in his hand and his, his, his clothing will be drenched in the blood of his enemies. He'll be riding a white horse, you know, dividing nations and, and judging those. That's what they expected the first time. So Jesus came and was born a baby. How helpless. How humble. How intimate. How tiny. In a barn. To a single mom at the time. Today we need to take a hard look at the way we do things and ask ourselves, do I count equality with God a thing to be grasped? Who's the real Lord of my life? Is it me? There's a God. Who do I proclaim to the world around me as the Lord of my life? God was so loving in sending his son to us. Adam talked about it last week how God's wrath was relented, was pushed back. When God sent his son, he could have sent his wrath, but instead he sent 
his son. He sent part of him. Instead of pouring out his wrath on those who deserved it, he relented so that we might know forgiveness. You ever poured out your wrath? You ever just let somebody know exactly what you think of them? You ever just flew off the handle with your wife and kids? You ever just finally told your husband what you think he, you know, should know? How do you think those dishes get clean, pal? You ever just said, you know what? Right now I'm the righteous judge. I'm going to let you all know how I feel about things. God had every right to do that. Instead, what he did, he sent his son to die. He sent his kid to die, his firstborn son, to die in our place. And what do we do in return to that? We shake our fist at him and say things aren't the way we want them to be. God loves us still. God could have poured out his wrath, but he relented from it so that sinners like you and me might know him. And he said, I got something better for you. I'm going to give you me. Could have given us death. He gave us his son. So, this is the exact reason we should celebrate Christmas. Because God, instead of sending you to hell, he sent his son to give us life. So get out your Christmas tree, put lights on the house, buy presents for people, eat food you wouldn't normally eat in, an, in amounts that you wouldn't normally eat, but only do it in thanks to the one who has relented his wrath. And instead of giving you death, gave you life. Abundantly. He gave you life and breath and everything that you have. And then when you sinned against him, he said, you know what? I'll give you more. And then tomorrow when you sin against him, he'll give you more. And then the next day, he'll give you more. That's what we call grace. When you are given things you don't deserve. So... My final point, I'd like to invite the band to come up. Christmas, the celebration of Jesus' humble service. All right, this text that I've been preaching, not very Christmassy. Not very Yule tidy. Not a lot of tinsel in this verse. But I think it encapsulates the message of Christmas in a most refreshing and true way. Verses 7 and 8. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So as we kick off this Advent time, this season of celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, we're not just merely celebrating a baby 
or a story of a baby. We are celebrating the collision of heaven and earth coming together in a point that creation had waited for for a long, long time. We celebrate the beginning of God's rescue plan for his creation. We celebrate the creator humbling himself to become like the creation. Jesus, he was born with just a biological mother and was adopted by a construction worker dad. And in John 8, 41, the Pharisees made fun of him for it. They said, you son of a... He humbled himself to that. He was a carpenter for 30 years. Worked with his hands for 30 years. Didn't have much of an income. And there was a point where he couldn't afford his taxes. Matthew 17, 27. He makes money come out of a fish's mouth. So he could pay his taxes. And it says in Isaiah 53 too, he wasn't much to look at. He wasn't blonde haired, blue eyed westerner that we think he is. He was a Galilean. You know, and he didn't, he didn't come in glory like he could have, like he should have. He came as a baby, helpless, in need of someone to take care of him. God made himself needy. I said needy. He was not in need. He was still God. He didn't destroy his enemies when they threatened to kill him. He laid his life down. When he could have very well fought back. When he could have very well let Peter go at it with the sword and destroy his enemies. He said, no, 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 no. This is what I'm here to do. This is why I came. I'm here to rescue. I'm not here to live and die by the sword. I'm here just to die. This kind of humility doesn't register with us because it's such a foreign idea. Can you imagine your boss making copies for you? Can you imagine the CEO of a corporation helping out with inventory? Can you imagine the president of our nation working at the DMV for a while? And you see, these are terrible analogies, but it's the best I got to explain to you the king and God of all creation becoming a baby. The story of Christmas is the story of our redemption. If we cheapen it to presents and traditions, forgetting to share the good news of Jesus' sacrifice, we will have wasted this opportunity. This, this opportunity to share with ourselves the good news of Jesus Christ, to share with our families the good news of Jesus Christ, and our neighbors the good news of Jesus Christ. The reason for the wise men, the reason for the shepherds, the reason for the stable and the manger is not so that we might show our greatness to those around us. It is so that God might show his greatness around the world. 
Will you, will you join me in redeeming this season? It can be redeemed. It doesn't have to be about the stuff. It doesn't have to be about the lights. It can be about the light of the world. Let's celebrate Christmas. Let's celebrate Christmas hardcore. Let's go all out. Can I get an amen, Autumn Sands? A woman lives and breathes for this time of year. And it is a time of joy, but not the kind of joy that normally leaves us in a slump come January, right? We celebrate Christmas year-round. We celebrate the birth of God as a human being year-round. Every day we wake up and have breath, we ought to celebrate Christmas because God made himself humble. God became like us so that we might become like his son. Let's make this different than like years before. Let's celebrate Christmas in such a way that people see the trinkets as the trinkets and Jesus as the treasure. Now we're going to sing together, all glory be to Christ, and that is true. Let all glory be to Christ. And let's not live in such a way that we think that, that, that we deserve the credit or the glory. Let's sing this together. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive. Unless the Lord does raise the house in vain, its builders strive. And to you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ. Let's sing together. Let's worship the King of glory. Let's, let's ask that all glory be to Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we want you to receive the glory today. We want our lives to be about you, Jesus. We want all of this to be for you. Help us, God, to realign our hearts so that we might go out and live for your purpose, that we might live lives of, of focus and being on mission for your glory, God. Not that our efforts should stand, but that we might proclaim your efforts, because they will stand. We praise you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.